One of the things Sayadaw Utejaniya says about our practice, the purpose of our practice is to cultivate wisdom. And the Buddha's expression of what he taught, a succinct expression of what he taught, he said, I teach only suffering and its end. And so the wisdom of the Buddha relates directly to the ending of suffering. The other day when I talked about the five faculties as cultivating the skill of our practice and mentioned how all skills require um, some kind of understanding about what we are doing, what our aim, our purpose is in that skill. Well, the aim, the purpose of the skill of meditation is to understand suffering. So the, the wisdom of the Buddha relates directly to this question of suffering. And his statement in the Four Noble Truths, Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, of the craving leading to suffering, the truth of the ending of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the ending of suffering. He didn't state these as truths just to be believed, but as truths to be acted on, and gave us actions for each of these truths. Understanding suffering, letting go of the cause of suffering, realizing the ending of suffering, and cultivating the path leading to the ending of suffering. So this cultivating of the path, a good part of that cultivating of the path is cultivating wisdom. The wisdom of what leads to suffering and what leads to freedom from suffering. This cultivation of the path leads to the the cultivation of wisdom. The result of that is this third noble truth, the the kind of the direction it heads and the ultimate uh, result of the cultivating of the path is the ending of suffering, the third noble truth. Freedom from suffering, cooling Nibbana, the um, definition of this third noble truth. This is from the first discourse the Buddha gave. And I'm changing the translation a little bit from what uh, what the translator used to use some of the language we've been using in this retreat. This is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. It is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving 
the abandoning of it, freedom from it, non-reliance on it. As I was reading this passage, as I was preparing for the talk, that last phrase really kind of stood out at me. Non-reliance on craving. You know, how do we rely on craving? That What a great reflection to contemplate. Non-reliance on craving is this ending of suffering. Another clear definition from the texts for this freedom from suffering of Nibbana is the ending of greed or the absence of the absence of greed, the absence of aversion or hatred, the absence of delusion. I'm going to read some texts from the suttas. These are from separate suttas, but I think it was Nyanati Loka who put these all together, and I like the way they flow together. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This, indeed, is called Nibbana. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, one aims at one's own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana, immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done, and nothing more remains to do. Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, even so neither forms, nor sounds, nor odors, nor tastes, nor contacts of any kind, neither the desired nor the undesired, can cause such a one to waver. Steadfast is the mind, gained is deliverance. This is peace. This is exquisite. The resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. This is peace. This is exquisite. We wouldn't normally think relinquishment of all acquisitions that is exquisite. This is what the Buddha says is his experience. So a couple of things I I like about this, uh, a couple of things I'd like to point to in this set of passages. One is the I mean, the exquisiteness, I think, that he's pointing to is 
one experiences no mental pain and grief. That sounds pretty good to me. No mental pain and grief. The second thing that I like to reflect on here is he says, visible in this life, the possibility of meeting this in this life, finding this, coming to this ending of suffering in this life. Not that it has to be some far off thing, but possible, possible in this life. I think also what this is pointing to is that um, freedom doesn't mean, or that, that freedom is possible in, right in the midst of living. It doesn't require us to die. It's not about transcending life. It's about freedom within life. That's inspiring to me, that possibility. So this third noble truth, realize the ending of suffering. Absence of greed, absence of aversion, absence of delusion. Realizing absence of greed, absence of aversion, absence of delusion. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, he wrote a little uh, pamphlet called Nibbana for Everyone. And in that um, pamphlet, he was talking to lay people. And, um, you know, he's saying, you know, Nibbana is not just for... You know, people who meditate all the time, it's visible in in our activities. And he was encouraging people to open to the possibility of small moments of freedom, small moments of absence of greed, aversion, and delusion that happen in our lives. He called them temporary Nibbana. And he said this about it. Anyone can see if states of greed, aversion, and delusion were with us day and night, every second without ceasing. Living things must either die or become insane. Let us consider that we survive because there are periods that the fires of greed, aversion, and delusion are not burning. I think Joseph Goldstein, having read this and reflected on it, um, he he said about these moments. He said they actually happen a lot. Moments of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion happen a lot throughout our day. But they are not realized, they are not recognized because they're so subtle. Our minds are attuned to much coarser phenomena Definitely attuned to greed, aversion, and delusion. So part of our uh, path, I think, part of our practice is learning to recognize 
small moments of shifts of perspective, small moments of feeling of release. I think these small moments of release are not um, complete freedom. But I think they do point the way. I think they give us an, give us an indication of the direction of our practice. And so that's something I'd like to explore today. How do we recognize wisdom? How do we experience wisdom? Sayadaw Utejaniya gave me the instruction at one point. He said, recognize what wisdom is arising for you. And that was not a instruction that made much sense to me. Um, But I tried it on. (laughs) And uh, about all I could do initially was um, when I was experiencing some sense of ease, I would just recognize or acknowledge there's some kind of wisdom there. And then uh, I think it it happened a little more on reflection, uh, thinking back on my practice of seeing actually wisdom arises in so many different ways. And so I'd like to uh, talk about some of the ways I've seen wisdom in my practice in practice, in hearing other people describing practice. Ways that uh, wisdom is manifesting. So the first thing to recognize about wisdom is that it develops by having experience be in contact with dukkha. So that's not a mistake. It's not a mistake that uh, we're meeting dukkha in our path. If we can shift our perspective, we can uh, be happy when we meet dukkha (laughs) because we know that that is how wisdom develops. So it seems to me that wisdom has different ways that it functions in our practice. Related to the different levels of wisdom I talked about, the the level of uh, hearing, the level of reflection, the level of insight, uh, that wisdom operates at different levels in our in our um, practice. So sometimes we bring wisdom in consciously. And I've been mentioning this, you know, suggesting that that first talk I think I gave on a practical, wise view that we can consciously bring in the perspective of wisdom if we're finding ourselves imbalanced. We can remind ourselves of some perspectives of, of wisdom. This is impermanent. This is nature. This is dukkha. So that's one way that wisdom functions. We, we bring it in consciously. 
Sometimes wisdom is um, a little stronger. It's actually connected with um, experience that we've had. Maybe it's um, bubbling up from past wisdom that we've directly experienced. And that wisdom is kind of bubbling up and we can, in the moment, see we have a choice. So it, it, it sometimes wisdom can bubble up almost intuitively and then we can consciously choose to act on it. Or we ignore it and do something else. Or defilements are strong enough that we see that wisdom bubbling up and the defilements go, sorry, we're going that way. <laughs> so sometimes we can see this, uh, this wisdom uh, kind of intuitively bubbling up. That's where it's kind of middle level of wisdom. And then there's a deeper wisdom where um, in a moment wisdom and awareness are meeting experience and there is clear seeing operating immediately in that moment. For instance, when we see the arising of uh, a defilement and the clear seeing of it and the defilement just vanishes. It's not something we do. It's not something we have to say, oh, maybe I should let go of that defilement. Maybe I should not act on that defilement. Wisdom is right there and it just, it just truncates that defilement. And it's not a doing. It's not us saying I need to do that. It's wisdom operating in that moment. So different ways it's experienced, different ways wisdom is experienced. And as I reflect on these from my own practice, you may reflect or um, come up or be reminded of ways that it has happened in your own practice. So sometimes we feel a kind of a shift of perspective about something that's difficult. That there's, we, we, we go from being a little bit caught in a defilement to recognizing, oh, this is just, this is just frustration, this is just wanting, so it's not that the uh, pattern disappears instantly upon being seen, but there is a shift of kind of a little relaxing around it. Like, oh, okay. It can, it can unfold. It can have its own time, its own momentum, and watch it just fade. I um, resonate with this as being kind of like putting a car into neutral. So, you know, if a car is going 60 miles an hour down the freeway, it's got that momentum. And if you put the car into neutral, it doesn't stop immediately. You know, it, it just slows down of its own accord. It's not like putting on the brakes. It's not like suppressing or, you know, it's not like putting on the brakes. 
So sometimes that shift of perspective is like putting the mind into neutral and just watching the defilement roll to a stop, like the car rolls to a stop. So the the pattern can continue for a time, but without resistance, without clinging, without judgment, without ideas, opinions, views about what should and shouldn't happen about that defilement, it naturally ends because it's an impermanent phenomenon like all things that arise in our minds. So we can, um, if we can find our way to that neutral perspective, these defilements will come to an end. Some of you may have read or heard about Jill Bolte Taylor's book, My Stroke of Insight, or perhaps seen her TED Talk um, about uh, a stroke that she had. And, um, you know, in that stroke, she basically, you know, she basically saw how, she had a stroke in her left hemisphere, which kind of controlled the rational, logical uh, part of her mind. And while the stroke was happening, that logical, rational part of her mind came in and out. And um, while the logical, rational part of her mind was out, she was experiencing deep bliss and interconnected and uh, interconnectedness, no problem. Then the rational part of her mind would come in and says, this is a problem. We need to do something about this. I need to call somebody and let them know I'm having a stroke. And then it would go away and she'd be like, oh, no problem. It would come back. She'd work her way to the phone. Oh, no problem. Anyway, so this went on for a while. <laughs> In her recovery process, um, she's, she, she is a neurobiologist, so she knew something about the brain. And um, so she had experienced this sense of, you know, her, her left hemisphere essentially being kind of shut down and how her, when her right hemisphere was functioning, how much peace and ease there was. And so in her recovery, as her brain started recovering and that left hemisphere started healing, she started seeing Jill come back. All the struggles and sufferings of Jill came back. And um, she knew, based on her uh, understanding of neurobiology, that when a pattern initiates some kind of an emotional pattern often initiates, that there's some kind of a release of chemicals, hormones, through the, the brain and through the body. And if that, uh, if there's no further release of those chemicals, that they will last in the body for about 90 seconds. So she started doing this practice when something like that would happen, some negative uh, pattern or habit that she was familiar with. Her image was step to the right because the right side of her brain was the easeful part. You know, like step to the right for 90 seconds. That's all it takes. You know, Step to the right for 90 seconds. And watch it dissipate. Most of the time, uh, or some of the time as we're, we're exploring this, 
this step to the right, which, you know, we think of as the non-judgmental perspective, uh, the stepped-back perspective, uh, what she called step to the right. Much of the time, we, in that, we step to the left, (laughs) and there's a split second more of, oh, no, not that, and then, whew, we get another, it's like pushing the button for those hormones again. Oh, you got another 90 seconds. Okay, step to the right. (laughs) But in any case, we can see that shift. We can see that shift of perspective. And that shift is a form of wisdom. Seeing, oh, this is just anger. This is just fear. And from that perspective, it can dissipate. Another form of seeing wisdom is recognizing whatever experience is arising is simply a phenomenon arising in the present moment. This is that perspective. An object is just an object. So we see thought arise. We can you know, what often happens, a thought of the past, a memory arises, and often the memory um, brings up a whole host of identification, of recreation, of situation. If we can simply see that arising of thought as just thought, we see there's actually a slight gap between the thought and the whole host of arising of reactivity. The recreation of self, the emotional response to that. The thought arises as just a thought, and the the baggage, perhaps, that's associated with that thought. There's a split second after that thought arises, before which we pick up that baggage. So again, we can see this. It's possible. And and so seeing that, that split second seeing, a thought is just a thought. We see the thought arising and we see essentially that we don't have to pick up the baggage or that the baggage is not picked up. And that's wisdom operating. Sometimes we uh, see ourselves pick up the baggage and we can say, we might be able to say, oh, that's not so helpful. And again, so there's the, the levels of wisdom operating. Sometimes there, um, that wisdom of that's not so helpful arises, and we may be able to consciously let go, put that baggage down. Other times, we have no idea how to put that baggage down. There have been times in my practice where I see how I'm holding on to something and feeling the suffering of it deeply. And it's kind of like, if I knew how to let go of this, I would. I have no clue how to let go of this. When that's happening, we just notice the suffering. And there's wisdom in that. The wisdom develops through the contact with dukkha. If we can have the perspective of it, this is dukkha. So that's wisdom also. We also see 
you know, one of the things that uh, brings wisdom, understanding, is, for instance, in the arising of that memory. And then if we see ourselves pick it up and, you know, it, it's like, have no idea how to stop it. It's just in process. It's like watching the dominoes fall. We see, we begin to see that the suffering that's coming is actually being created right in this moment. It's not It's not the same suffering that existed 10 years ago when that event happened. The thought arises, reactivity arises in this moment. The suffering of this moment is being created right here and right now. Wisdom develops from that as well because we recognize that the mind, essentially again, the mind begins to recognize its own contribution in this moment. The mind is creating that suffering in the moment. When it sees that, it starts to, the wisdom of the mind starts to let go of that direction. I've talked about this quite a bit on this retreat, this, uh, uh, as we watch suffering unfold, we see our choices, we see what our mind is doing. This, the, the place of more continuity of awareness gives us the information or gives the mind the information about choices and causes and conditions And we see certain choices lead to consequences of dukkha. Certain choices lead to consequences of ease, of peace, release from dukkha. The wisdom is developing, again, through the meeting with the dukkha. It's not a mistake. You haven't made a mistake we make a choice, that the choice arises, it's more the choice arises, the choice arises, suffering follows. We see the consequences, we understand. The mind begins to understand the connection. And it does begin to see its contribution to those choices. And the mind begins to also learn, uh, as in my um, my story the other day when I talked about watching anger over and over again, seeing that anger arise over and over again, the mind definitely learned, this anger is causing me pain in the moment. That without the mindfulness of the experience of anger, the mind deluded itself into believing that... uh, it was causing somebody else suffering. You know, that, that it was, uh, you know, the, the, the mind was focused outward on the person I was angry with and the anger was directed that way. So in the mind being focused out that way, it wasn't recognizing 
the suffering that was happening here in this mind and body. So the mindfulness turned towards this body and mind's experience and learned very directly, this is dukkha. That's part of the learning. That's part, the wisdom develops from that. Wisdom develops from that recognition. This is dukkha here in this moment. Sometimes when we are attending to our experience, and many of you have described this in the, in the um, group discussions, that sometimes when uh, we recognize, you know, you recognize that, oh, this, this pattern is functioning in the mind. Oh, there's, there's, there's confusion or there's greed happening in the mind. And as soon as it's seen... It just goes away. That's, that's wisdom making it go away. That's wisdom releasing us from the defilement. Again, it's, not, it's often experienced not as a choice, not as something we're doing, but just as a simple release of, huh, it's gone. The perspective of wisdom in seeing that release of the defilement, in seeing that it goes, sometimes the perspective of wisdom, there's, there's three basic insights, three, three basic flavors of insights that really have a liberating power for us. Uh, the insights into impermanence, the insight into unreliability, the unsatisfactory nature of experience, the insight into the not-self nature of experience, the causal process nature of experience. And so sometimes in the quick disappearance of that defilement, the mind will be oriented more towards one or the other of these doorways. So we may be most attuned with the impermanent nature of that disappearance. Or we may may be most in tune with the fact that dukkha has vanished. Or we may be most in tune with the fact that it's not self that this whole thing, this whole process is unfolding. So just that's, that's wisdom. Wisdom can kind of come with those different flavors. We don't have to see all three at once. It's enough to, to see one. And from my, my own um, remembering of m- most of my deeper insights, they tend to have one or the other of these flavors. Another way that wisdom is experienced, and this one's a little bit... Um, a little bit different in a way. It's um, recognizing that defilement is not arising. In the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the foundation of the Dhammas, the Buddha talks about, particularly around uh, the hindrances, the 
five energies that tend to obscure our concentration, obstruct our ability to be present. Hence desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and anxiety, doubt. In that section of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha um, says that it's helpful to recognize the arising of the defilement, the ending of the defilement, and the non-arising of the defilement. So what does that mean? How do we recognize the non-arising of a defilement? Often, I think, um, the non-arising of a defilement comes as a, uh, almost as a reflection rather than a direct experience. It's a recognition, it's, it's like it can be a kind of an intellectual recognition. Oh, that's not there. So it, it often, the, that non-arising, the experience of the non-arising often comes as a, as a reflection. It may, it's not something necessarily that we try to reflect on, but it comes as a thought. It comes as, a, as, a, as an intellectual recognition that defilement is not there. You know, this, one of the ways this happens, and you know, encourage you to explore this, um, we, one way to support confidence in our practice is to recognize or to reflect on, here's a situation that's happening. How would I have been ten years ago, with this situation. And in that reflection, we, we can see, well, maybe there's still some reactivity here, but there's an awful lot of defilement that's not arising that would have arisen before we began practicing. So that's one way, uh, that the, the reflection. How was I in the past? Would have been a lot more reactivity here. And that's a kind of a, a way to support our confidence. This practice is heading us in a, in a good direction. Then there's um, kind of the, in the terrain of right effort, we learn through experience. And we, 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 re- we reflect on in this situation, you know, went like, you know, simple, simple example, perhaps, you know, with this particular person, if I get into a political conversation, it leads to suffering. So perhaps avoiding the, uh, that kind of conversation. So seeing what leads to suffering and not engaging in that activity, not engaging in that action. So that's the, the non-arising, you know, in that avoiding, a skillful uh, avoiding of activity. Sometimes I like to call that protecting. We're protecting ourselves from the arising of unwholesome states. Now this can be subtle. Um, you know, we might, we might recognize or think or, or see that, 
wow, whenever I see that person, um, I get frustrated or I get angry or, you know, something. We see that there's a connection between being with a particular person or in a particular situation and the the state of the, the unwholesome state of mind arising. And we might think, okay, well, right effort says I should avoid that situation. I should ne- never see that person ever again. Another way towards the uh, avoiding is learning. Uh, Joseph Goldstein talks about mindfulness as protection. That when we can be mindful in that situation, the mindfulness can help us avoid the arising of that state. At least avoid the acting out on it. Another way we, I think for me this is the most direct way, the most in-the-moment experiential way of directly seeing the non-arising of defilement. And uh, I described a situation the other day, uh, so I'll just point rem- re- remind you of it. I don't have to go through the whole description again. The um, When I described the whole story about the anger and then the one day cutting the um, apple in the kitchen and seeing the mind, like the mind was just having this impulse to jump on that thought, think more thoughts in order to get angry. But wisdom saw It wasn't a conscious choice. Wisdom saw that way lies suffering. The mind chose to not go there. So that moment, that was a moment of seeing the intention towards unwholesome and the wisdom saying, not going to go there. That was a very direct experience of the non-arising of that anger. And that was one of the potencies of that moment that I saw in that moment the possibility of having anger not arise. I was very direct in that moment, clear. Anger didn't arise because the mind saw the intention and the consequences of that in the moment. And wisdom saw that. Wisdom saw that and let it go. Another way we can recognize the non-arising of defilement is seeing or knowing that the mind is free of defilement in a moment. Seeing the equanimity, seeing the non-reactivity. When the mind is in that place of balance, of equanimity, defilement is not arising. We don't know specifically what defilement's not arising, but we know the mind is free of that. So these moments of recognizing how wisdom is operating. Most of these that I've described are kind of in the moment kinds of wisdom. The wisdom can also act 
more silently in the background. The example I talked about where over the course of mm, years watching the pattern or seeing the pattern of anger, not now, seeing it not now, and then one day recognizing, hey, it's gone. I didn't see in that, it wasn't like seeing the non-arising in that split second, but it was the clear recognition, free from that defilement. Free from that defilement. But but the wisdom seemed to operate, I mean, it wasn't like a split second of wisdom in that in that experience. It seemed to be wisdom that was kind of operating over the course of years, slowly, grain by grain, rotting that rope of anger, of that particular anger. So sometimes wisdom acts really slowly, gently in the background, imperceptibly. And then we see, again, kind of like the the thing I mentioned about, you know, seeing how you were in the past. We see, oh, it's different now. Wisdom has been functioning. So there's a distinction, I think, between these moments, these this, these descriptions I've given of ways wisdom operates and freedom from suffering and Nibbana. But I think they're a pointer. They're a, an indication of the direction the mind heads. It's kind of like we see in those moments the mind in a somewhat more pure state. And then it goes back to being deluded and confused. And so we recognize in a way the delusion because we've seen a little bit more purity. And when we see that the filters of delusion become a little bit more clear, a little bit more obvious, I shouldn't say clear, they become more clear, more obvious to us that they're functioning because some of that delusion has fallen away. It's kind of like we start with a kind of a gray, cloudy colored uh, perspective and some of these insights happen and it's like we see things and it's a little bit more um, light. There's there's not the clouds there, so there's a little bit more light. And then, um, so we, we get familiar with that level of light. And then we see in that place Wow, some more falling away. And then we see, oh, there's delusion happening here too. (laughs) And we see a deeper level of purity. So it happens slowly, I think, that uh, recognition of how delusion is operating in our minds. Wisdom, bits of wisdom come in, clear some delusion, we get a, a deeper sense of understanding. And then there's another bit of delusion that's unmasked. And then it comes back. It's a kind of a back and forth. So we may be unaware of some of the delusion we are operating with. The conditions of our practice create the conditions, the the container of our practice creates the conditions for insight to 
arise. We can't make insight arise. We can't do that. But we can cultivate the continuity of mindfulness, cultivate moment after moment presence of mind. And that, along with the understanding, the perspective of right view, those two things create the conditions for insight to happen, for that clearing of delusion to happen. That delusion clears, and then it comes back. The delusion clears, it comes back. We get more and more familiar with what it's like to not be in delusion. So the uh, you know, the insights support, insights this wisdom, supports our confidence, supports our um, interest in engaging back to these five faculties. We, we gain some insights. It inspires us. We become more confident in the practice. Yes, we see how we see more clearly. We engage more. Mindfulness becomes stronger. Concentration becomes stronger. That's the conditions for insights to arise. Wisdom to arise. I think I'll stop there. So let's just sit.